Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, welcome to episode three of the Rethinking Education podcast. This, as advertised, is going to be a short sorbet course, if you like, a short little excerpt, in fact two excerpts from the writing of Carl Rogers, the founder of person-centred psychotherapy. As you may have noticed if you listen to episodes one and two, I am really interested in this idea that Carl Rogers spoke about of significant learning. And so in this episode, I'm going to share a short excerpt in which Rogers outlines what he means by significant learning. And then I'm going to share with you a longer piece of writing, which is this incredible speech that Carl Rogers gave at Harvard University in 1952. I don't present this piece of writing as gospel truth. I'm not here to say whether I agree or disagree with it. But in episode two, I spoke with Ian Cunningham about the idea of the Overton window, the window of acceptable debate. And in recent years, the window of acceptable debate has become quite narrow around education compared with the kinds of conversations people were having 40 or 50 years ago. And so I'm sharing this partly to shed some light on this idea of significant learning, but also to act as a provocation, a stick of dynamite, a crowbar, use whatever metaphor you wish to see if we can get that Overton window nice and wide. So first of all, here is Carl Rogers on what he describes as significant learning. By significant learning, I mean learning which is more than an accumulation of facts. It is learning which makes a difference in the individual's behaviour, in the course of action he chooses in the future, in his attitudes and in his personality. It is a pervasive learning which is not just an accretion of knowledge, but which interpenetrates with every portion of his existence. Now, it is not only my subjective feeling that such learning takes place. This feeling is substantiated by research. In client-centred therapy, the orientation with which I am most familiar and in which the most research has been done, we know that exposure to such therapy produces learnings or changes of these sorts. The person comes to see himself differently. He accepts himself and his feelings more fully. He becomes more self-confident and self-directing. He becomes more the person he would like to be. He becomes more flexible, less rigid in his perceptions. He adopts more realistic goals for himself. He behaves in a more mature fashion. He changes his maladjustive behaviours even such a long-established one as chronic alcoholism. He becomes more acceptant of others. He becomes more open to the evidence, both to what is going on outside of himself and to what is going on inside of himself. He changes in his basic personality characteristics in constructive ways. I think perhaps this is sufficient to indicate that these are learnings which are significant, which do make a difference. Close quote. So in the last episode, when I spoke to Ian Cunningham about some of the work that he's done with really effective, successful people out in the world, and he asks them, what are the learnings that have most, most influenced you? Essentially, he was asking them about Roger's idea of significant learning. 
and only in a small percentage of cases did people talk about learning that they undertook in formal educational settings or training programs. Most often people talk about experiences that they have had, conversations that they've had, people that they've met, books that they have read, things that are sort of social learning or accidental learning. And I think that this is fascinating because significant learning of this nature can take place within educational settings and we can promote this agenda, this wider agenda if you like, and we saw some really good examples of that in episode one in my conversation with Debbie Kidd. Um, but also I think it's important to recognise that much of the significant learning that shapes our lives takes place outside of formal educational settings. With this in mind, I'm going to share with you now a second piece of writing that Carl Rogers gave. It's included as a short chapter in his absolutely brilliant book on becoming a person. Before he shares this speech in his book, there's a short introduction which I will include because it helps to set the context. The chapter is called Personal Thoughts on Teaching and Learning. This is the shortest chapter in the book, but if my experience with it is any criterion, it is also the most explosive. It has a, brackets to me, close brackets, amusing history. I had agreed months in advance to meet with a conference organized by Harvard University on classroom approaches to influencing human behavior. I was requested to put on a demonstration of student-centered teaching, teaching based upon therapeutic principles as I had been endeavoring to apply them in education. I felt that to use two hours with a sophisticated group to try and help them formulate their own purposes and to respond to their feelings as they did so would be highly artificial and unsatisfactory. I did not know what I would do or present. At this juncture, I took off for Mexico on one of our winter trips, did some painting, writing and photography and immersed myself in the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. I'm sure that his honest willingness to call a spade a spade influenced me more than I realised. As the time came near to return, I had to face up to my obligation. I recalled that I had sometimes been able to initiate very meaningful class discussions by expressing some highly personal opinion of my own, and then endeavouring to understand and accept the often very divergent reactions and feelings of the students. This seemed to me to be a sensible way of handling my Harvard assignment. So I sat down to write, as honestly as I could, what my experiences had been with teaching, as this term is defined in the dictionary, and likewise my experience with learning. I was far away from psychologists, educators, cautious colleagues. I simply put down what I felt, with assurance that if I had not got it correctly, the discussion would help to set me back on the right track. I may have been naive, but I did not consider the material inflammatory. After all, the conference members were knowledgeable, self-critical teachers whose main common bond was an interest in the discussion method in the classroom. I met with the conference, I presented my views as written out below, taking only a very few moments and threw the meeting open for discussion. I was hoping for a response, but I did not expect the tumult which followed. Feelings ran high. It seemed I was threatening their jobs, I was obviously saying things I didn't mean, etc, etc, and occasionally a quiet voice of appreciation arose from a teacher who had felt these things but had never dared to say them. I dare say that not one member of the group remembered that this meeting was billed as a demonstration of student-centred teaching. 
but I hope that in looking back, each realized that he had lived an experience of student-centered teaching. I refused to defend myself by replying to the questions and attacks which came from every quarter. I endeavored to accept and empathize with the indignation, the frustration, the criticisms which they felt. I pointed out that I had merely expressed some very personal views of my own. I had not asked nor expected others to agree. After much storm, members of the group began expressing more and more frankly their own significant feelings about teaching, often feelings divergent from mine, often feelings divergent from each other. It was a very thought-provoking session. I question whether any participant in that session has ever forgotten it. The most meaningful comment came from one of the conference members the next morning as I was preparing to leave the city. All he said was, you kept more people awake last night. I took no steps to have this small fragment published. My views on psychotherapy had already made me a controversial figure among psychologists and psychiatrists. I had no desire to add educators to the list. The statement was widely duplicated, however, by members of the conference, and several years later, two journals requested permission to publish it. After this lengthy historical build-up, you may find the statement itself a letdown. Personally, I have never felt it to be incendiary. It still expresses some of my deepest views in the field of education. Okay, so that's the end of the introduction. I wish to present some very brief remarks in the hope that if they bring forth any reaction from you, I may get some new light on my own ideas. I find it a very troubling thing to think, particularly when I think about my own experiences and try to extract from those experiences the meaning that seems genuinely inherent in them. At first, such thinking is very satisfying because it seems to discover sense and pattern in a whole host of discrete events. But then it very often becomes dismaying because I realize how ridiculous these thoughts, which have much value to me, would seem to most people. My impression is that if I try to find the meaning of my own experience, it leads me, nearly always, in directions regarded as absurd. So in the next three or four minutes, I will try to digest some of the meanings which have come to me from my classroom experience and the experience I have had in individual and group therapy. They are in no way intended as conclusions for someone else or a guide to what others should do or be. They are the very tentative meanings as of April 1952, which my experience has had for me and some of the bothersome questions which their absurdity raises. I will put each idea or meaning in a separate lettered paragraph, not because they are in any particular logical order, but because each meaning is separately important to me. And so here come the statements, and they, there are 13 of them. They are lettered A to M. A. I may as well start with this one in view of the purposes of this conference. My experience has been that I cannot teach another person how to teach. To attempt it is for me, in the long run, futile. B. It seems to me that anything that can be taught to another is relatively inconsequential and has little or no significant influence on behaviour. That sounds so ridiculous, I can't help but question it at the same time that I present it. C. I realise increasingly 
that I am only interested in learnings which significantly influence behavior. Quite possibly, this is simply a personal idiosyncrasy. D. I have come to feel that the only learning which significantly influences behavior is self-discovered, self-appropriated learning. E. Such self-discovered learning, truth that has been personally appropriated and assimilated in experience, cannot be directly communicated to another. As soon as an individual tries to communicate such experience directly, often with a quite natural enthusiasm, it becomes teaching, and its results are inconsequential. It was some relief recently to discover that Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, had found this too in his own experience and stated it very clearly a century ago. It made it seem less absurd. F. As a consequence of the above, I realise that I have lost interest in being a teacher. G. When I try to teach, as I sometimes do, I am appalled by the results, which seem a little more than inconsequential because sometimes the teaching appears to succeed. When this happens, I find that the results are damaging. It seems to cause the individual to distrust his own experience and to stifle significant learning. Hence, I have come to feel that the outcomes of teaching are either unimportant or hurtful. H. When I look back at the results of my past teaching, the real results seem the same. Either damage was done or nothing significant occurred. This is frankly troubling. I. As a consequence, I realise that I am only interested in being a learner, preferably learning things that matter, that have some significant influence on my own behaviour. J. I find it very rewarding to learn, in groups, in relationships with one person, as in therapy, or by myself. K. I find that one of the best but most difficult ways for me to learn is to drop my own defensiveness, at least temporarily, and to try to understand the way in which another person's experience seems and feels to that other person. L. I find that another way of learning for me is to state my own uncertainties, to try to clarify my puzzlements, and thus get closer to the meaning that my experience actually seems to have. M. This whole train of experiencing, and the meaning that I have thus far discovered in it, seems to have launched me on a process which is both fascinating and at times a little frightening. It seems to mean letting my experience carry me on in a direction which appears to be forward towards goals that I can but dimly define as I try to understand at least the current meaning of that experience. The sensation is that of floating with a complex stream of experience with the fascinating possibility of trying to comprehend its ever-changing complexity. I am almost afraid I may seem to have forgotten away from any discussion of learning as well as teaching. Let me again introduce a practical note by saying that by themselves, these interpretations of my experience may sound queer and aberrant, but not particularly shocking. It is when I realize the implications that I shudder a bit at the distance I have come from the common sense worldview that everyone knows is right. I can best illustrate this by saying that if the experiences of others had been the same as mine, and if they had discovered similar meanings in it, 
many consequences would be implied. And now Rogers lists his consequences A to E. A. Such experience would imply that we would do away with teaching. People would get together if they wished to learn. B. We would do away with examinations. They measure only the inconsequential type of learning. C. We would do away with grades and credits for the same reason. D. We would do away with degrees as a measure of competence partly for the same reason. Another reason is that a degree marks an end or a conclusion of something and a learner is only interested in the continuing process of learning. E. We would do away with the exposition of conclusions, for we would realise that no one learns significantly from conclusions. I think I had better stop there. I do not want to become too fantastic. I want to know primarily whether anything in my inward thinking, as I have tried to describe it, speak to anything in your experience of the classroom as you have lived it, and if so, what the meanings are that exist for you in your experience. Close quote. So, whether you agree with Rogers or disagree, and I would imagine that most people would disagree, you can't argue that it's not interesting to think about. You know, here's somebody who's thought a lot about significant learning. And what I love about the way that he presents this is that he doesn't want to persuade anyone. He doesn't want to judge anyone. He just wants to understand the range of responses that people have. One thing that occurs to me just towards the end there, when he said we would do away with the exposition of conclusions, that reminds me of something that the, the, the playwright and dramatist Ken Campbell said once when he said that a full stop is a lie because it suggests that a sentence is the end of the matter. He said that actually a full stop is a hyphen that's flying directly at you, which I like a lot. So the reason that I wanted to share this was partly to punctuate my very long conversation with Ian Cunningham, but partly because I think that Roger's writing here goes some way to explaining some of Ian's views around why he thinks that teaching is a problem because it inculcates an external locus of control and that actually self-directed learning is more powerful and more healthy in the long run. Now this, I understand, flies in the face of much of the current rhetoric that we see against discovery learning and in favour of explicit direct instruction. And just as a final thought on that, I think that the, the key distinction to be made there is whether or not you have a predefined curriculum. If you have a predefined curriculum, absolutely, direct instruction is the most efficient way to teach that and then to test it. But if you don't have a predefined curriculum, and as we'll see later in the next episode, Ian doesn't think that we should have a national curriculum. And again, that might sound ridiculous, but 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have one. And as Ian mentions as well, a recent comparison of different ages and the literacy rates in different ages find that the people in this country with the highest literacy rates are in the 55 to 65 category, people who were educated before the national curriculum came into effect. So here ends my little mini episode, a short provocation. I hope you find this as interesting as I do. I think that it bears listening to a few times because some of Roger's ideas take some getting used to, 
And it's an interesting exercise to try to read this piece of work or to listen to it and to do as Roger says and to listen to it and to accept it and to not sit in judgment or to think about all of the ways in which Roger's is wrong or right. Okay, I'll draw this episode to a close for now. I hope you enjoyed this short provocation, this little sorbet course that punctuates the halfway point between uh, the first and second halves of my conversation with Ian Cunningham. Time is a measure of change.